Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse, created by the team at the Sober Network. The Sober Network has engaged in revolutionizing the treatment industry by creating its own token economy. We offer fresh ideas to an industry that has relied on dated interventions. We are responsive to a new generation of substance users who are attached to their phones so we can impact massive social change. Our unmatched technology displays solutions of our various brands, demonstrating a thorough understanding of how we get things done. We are proving that technology, along with incentivized human accountability, provides measurable and positive outcomes. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Sober Verse, brought to you by the Sober Network. I am your host, uh, Jamie Brickhouse, and I am delighted to welcome uh, Kevin Franciotti. I hope I got that right to our show. Uh, he Denver-based uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapist and addiction and mental health counselor with over 15 years' experience in community mental health harm reduction and direct service work. We've got a lot to talk about. Thanks for joining us on the Sober Podcast, Kevin. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. Excited to be here. Great. And you're joining us from Colorado. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you found sobriety. Sure. Um, I mean, as 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 much as I would like them to be separate, independent, mutually exclusive things, they're certainly not, which is quite common in uh, among addiction counselors, either with lived experience or our loved ones of those with lived experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my um, interest in the nature of the mind, in consciousness, um, in drugs as a way of expanding or simply altering or producing a non-ordinary state of consciousness fascinated me and predated both my addiction and my professional interest as a practitioner. So we're talking at this point, you know, back in my early, uh, late high school, early college back in the East Coast. But um, yeah, that's sort of a broad strokes view of it and happy to get into more detail uh, as we proceed. Sure. Um, Well, we've been anticipating your interview due to uh, you being a pioneer with psychedelics in recovery and finding a way to recover with the use of psychedelics uh, do you work with ketamine only or other methods of treatment? 
No. So I've only been working with ketamine for about a year and a half. Uh Um, So I started uh, as developing a harm reduction orientation, you know, recognition of any positive change ought to be supported, reinforced and nurtured, as well as mindfulness informed community, uh, sorry, mindfulness informed cognitive behavioral strategies. So I had as much as my passion is for psychedelics and psychedelic healing, I didn't want to put all my eggs in a basket of drugs that have thus far remained prohibited and therefore may never have an authorized, legalized framework of using it. So I had to develop, of course, a broader, more mainstream skill set. And so for, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how, how ketamine works for, uh, I mean, I knew it as a, you know, uh, when I was uh, drinking and using a special K as a party drug. Um, and so why don't you tell us about how that works, how you, how you use it in, um, uh, in, in recovery? Sure. I mean, um, ketamine is kind of the existing legal authorized psychedelic adjacent kind of medicine. So a classical psychedelic are those that have a primary mechanism of action on the serotonin 2A receptor. That's about mm-hmm. as scientific as I strive to get <laughs> in this interview. Um, but Thank those you. Cla- I appreciate that. Those classical psychedelics that have that kind of activity on the brain are your psilocybin containing you know, mm-hmm. so-called magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, basically a class of compounds known as the tryptamines. Um, ketamine is a very, I call it a psychedelic adjacent because it's acting on an entirely different uh, receptor network in the brain. And yet it produces a somewhat similar, but not entirely the same kind of experience. And what is kind of on a logistical level, a good way of working with it is unlike a medicine like LSD, psilocybin, even MDMA, which is an empathogen, also kind of a, not exactly a classical psychedelic. Ketamine really merges quite well into the existing structure of what you would consider your traditional 50 minute hour a week type of therapy service. So ketamine has a much shorter duration of action. It provides a very deep experience at um, higher, but still sub anesthetic doses, and then a very um, slight release of inhibition at lower doses without producing a totally altered state that doesn't lend itself to talk-based approaches. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the logistical reasons, but in a phenomenological sense, you know, exactly your to your point, drugs that have a connotation for recreational use it have very context-specific applications. So whether you're using it as a party to enhance dancing or communication with uh, strangers or your close group of friends, or it's the type of drug that helps fuel more rampant drug use, say, you know, people (laughs) who use cocaine that to allow them to stay up wet all night drinking way much more than they would usually be able to. Yeah. So in the context of therapy, you know, ketamine and other psychedelics, it's very important that a container, a therapeutic container is structured around this idea of set and setting. So the mindset that somebody goes into a therapy process with Mm -hmm. is clearly very different than the mindset someone goes out on a Friday night to the club with. And then the setting, of course, the obvious differences, we're not talking smoke machines and strobe lights and loud thumping music. We're talking uh, a more um, kind of uh, comfortable, 
uh, non-intrusive um, therapy setting that sort of looks like your favorite living room at one of your relatives' houses, a nice comfortable place for you to spend a few hours experiencing a medicine effect as an augment to the therapy process. You answered a lot of my questions there. And um, and in that and in that therapeutic setting, um, uh, the 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 patient, the person, the the, the uh, using it, um, are they doing it with a counselor? Yeah. Like so the I way mm-hmm. so the way I work is typically um, after a series of uh, what we call preparation type of meetings. Uh, that's just about your standard rapport building, trust enhancing, and development of a relationship between therapist and client, mm-hmm. um, getting a sense of what the presenting issues are, getting a landscape of the symptomatology and what kinds of distress is being experienced, lends itself quite necessarily towards approaching working with medicines. So when I administer or the client actually self-administers a medication because I'm not a medical provider, so I refer a client to uh, medical screening and evaluation and an order that a compound pharmacy tends to then send to the person's house. They bring in the medicine. We have a discussion about what can be expected based on different doses. And we have an option of things that the client can decide for themselves what they choose to self-administer. But then under the duration of effect, which the pronounced effects, the most pronounced effects of ketamine last anywhere between, you know, 30, 35 minutes to 75 minutes. So not, you know, a whole day, but a pretty Mm -hmm. significant chunk of time that needs to be committed to the therapy space. So I am present with them throughout the absorption, um, throughout the onset of effects, throughout the peak effects, and then during the come down. And there can be times where we have a prolonged period of silence where the client is kind of invited to, uh, look inward in this introspective state with this therapeutic music playing, eye shades, kind of your stereotypical image of what's been coming out of a lot of the psychedelic trials at right. academic institutions like Johns Hopkins and NYU. So we follow a similar model to that. And then as the medicine is kind of winding down, um, there is a desire to open up and talk about both what was experienced and touching upon things that maybe had nothing to do with what was experienced, but that we had covered during the preparation stage. And that allows us to really have a seamless transition to what we call the integration phase of these medicine journeys that really is about reinforcing behavioral change and long-term relief from whatever symptoms and the stress were being encountered. And do you use, um, does the counselor use ketamine as well or or during the, the therapy session? No, but it's not as outlandish an idea as one might think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ketamine less to a lesser extent because it's far more a synthetic medicine. But a lot of the psychedelics that are derived from naturally occurring plant uh, species from around the world have developed a cultural context that is more akin to shamanic type practices than our typical uh, Western um, allopathic medical model of, of healing. And whereas in ancient shamanic traditions, often the client was not the person ingesting the medicine, believe it or not, it was the shaman that would ingest the medicine, go uh-huh. into a, a trance-like altered state and work on the client and, and in a metaphysical kind of sense. So we had somewhat of a resurgence of this mm-hmm. kind of idea 
in mm-hmm. the 50s and 60s with the, some some of the preliminary research, kind of your Timothy Leary days where there was right. a lot of dual relationships, a lot of blurred boundaries between who's taking medicine, who's who's in need of healing, who's the healer, et cetera. But in, in today's kind of formalized sense for a variety of both ethical, practical, and, and therapeutic reasons, it, it's it's far more beneficial for the client to be ingesting the medicine and the counselor to be remaining, you know, that sober guide. Right, right. Yeah. And, and the way you described your sessions, um, it, it actually made me think of what I've read about early LSD use, you know, like when you heard about celebrities like Cary Grant or mm-hmm. um, uh, other people, uh, famous people at the time who did it, you're like, oh, my God, really? Okay, Cary Grant used LSD? And, and, and it, you know, because we think or I was thinking when I was hearing about it in college and I was doing it recreationally. You know, I just immediately thought, oh, Cary Grant was a tripper, you know, and doing it, in, in thera- but he was doing it therapeutically. And, and as far as what I know, in in therapeutic settings, like you said. Well, um, and then you have to you have to remember that this was this preceded a lot of the cultural baggage about right. um, society's uh, abhorrence to LSD and the scare that happened in the late 60s and early 70s. So when you look, you know, a decade, decade and a half earlier with folks like Aldous Huxley and Cary Grant um, becoming known as, as having taken LSD, um, somewhat infamously among certain circles and perhaps in other circles, something that would not wish to be talked about as often among Alcoholics Anonymous is Bill Wilson's own experiences on LSD, mm-hmm. which he approached, heard. yeah, which, which is he approached as a treatment for chronic depression that he struggled with for many years. And his LSD experiences um, brought a remarkable re- resemblance to his initial white light encounter that allowed him to get sober. So there's a bit of a misnomer that a lot of people think, you know, psychedelics served as the bedrock to the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is not entirely true. I mean, there's some speculation about the Belladonna type treatments that he may have received at Towns Hospital, Belladonna mm-hmm. being more of a delirium uh, as compared to a psychedelic. But right. years into sobriety, still struggling with depression is when Bill Wilson had his LSD experiences with Sidney Cohen and um, remarked at how similar the spiritual experiences that he had reflected the idea of a spiritual awakening through working the 12 steps, hence why he thought it might be so helpful to alcoholics really struggling in those early days of sobriety. Right. Which actually leads me to my next question um, that, you know, unfortunately, there are people who practice 12 step recovery programs that may frown on these uh, techniques or be judgmental. How have you ever managed to persuade a total non-believer um, to to come to believe or to um, to try this? Well, it's funny you should say that. I would say that attempts to persuade a total non-believer were probably my 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 long-standing motivation to pursue like a career as not only a practitioner, but also an advocate for reform of both drug laws and of course, psychedelic medicalization. Mm-hmm. And that's, that this is much more baked into my lived experience, which I would say was my parents, you know, as a, as a 17, 18 year old experimenting with cannabis, getting into some trouble, 
it's pretty hard to be convincing to your parents that, you know, <laughs> you're on to something here when, you know, they're getting mm -hmm. phone calls home from the police telling you to pick up your son. Yeah. Uh, he screwed up again. So I wasn't the best advocate at that time in my life. <laughs> um, but I, I would say that, that the inability to sort of convince uh, my parents and other members of my family kind of helped fuel my motivation to remain committed to this work. So I wouldn't quite say that I'm I have a vested interest in convincing the unconvincible, mm -hmm. um, but but what I would say is that I I acknowledge where the where a fear based resistance to recognizing a potential therapeutic positive role for people in recovery to do psychedelics and maybe it's not even fear based you know there's a, a conversation to be had about the role of what's called spiritual bypassing. And, you know, people in recovery are a very vulnerable and sensitive group, especially even in people with decades of abstinence. As soon as you start to invite uh, an allowance for some kind of relationship with a mood or mind altering substance, right. that could set people up on a slippery slope to thinking that it's about the consuming of the medicine that elicits an experience that is actually recovery. We don't profess that you know mm -hmm. i don't profess that as a person who works with psychedelics and as a person who's personally benefited from them i feel that it helps to inform my spiritual approach to my own recovery and my advocacy and my working with people with substance use conditions right good points um we're going to take a quick uh little commercial break and we will be back you in less than a minute so stick with us The Sober Podcast is giving a voice to recovery and is now part of the Soberverse. Join our new virtual sober environment where you can connect with other people like yourself or find helpful resources on the following digital spaces. Soberverse.com, Sobernetwork.com, Sober.com, Sobersystems.com, Soberpodcast.com, Sobercoin.com, and RecoveryCoaches.com. And we are back. Um, tell us how um, the experience and outcome differ for more traditional methods of treatment. Sure. And I mean, that's a complicated question, but I'll try to be as concise as possible, especially with my own experience, I think might be the best. Um, so in 2011, you know, I received an Ibogaine treatment. Ibogaine is the naturally occurring alkaloid of the Iboga shrub indigenous to Western equatorial Africa. And in a colloquial sense for those of those listeners that are a little more familiar with ayahuasca, in some ways it bears a lot of similarities with the indigenous culture around the Buiti, very different medicine, very different uh, community, but for a colloquial understanding, I think it is helpful. Um, so when I received an Ibogaine treatment for opiate use disorder, Ibogaine, in addition to eliciting a very profound and transformative psychedelic experience, has kind of a miraculous quality in attenuating opiate withdrawal. So unlike, say, a methadone or a buprenorphine um, or any other kind of pro-opioid agonist that is still acting on opiate receptors and therefore an individual is not in withdrawal, on Ibogaine, um, someone opiate dependent will be experiencing opi opiate withdrawal, but will be receiving a very kind of blissful euphoria that allows one to kind of ignore what's happening. And that's very much what happened with me. 
Mm-hmm. A year prior to my Ibogaine treatment, you know, I, I got in trouble as, as many young people uh, tend to do as their entry point to recovery. Right. I got into some trouble that I, that my sort of privileged upbringing and family resources couldn't really easily get me out of, which I had done prior to that. Um, so this time I had to be, you know, more traditionally uh, intervened upon. I, I hesitate to call it treatment because I think Going to a 30-day abstinence-based program that is heavily reliant on the 12-step model of recovery and the disease model of addiction doesn't really offer a whole lot of treatment. I didn't take a medicine. I didn't take a. I didn't participate in a sort of standardized evidence-based therapeutic intervention. I right. just kind of hung out with a bunch of fellow uh, drunks and addicts uh, for a month um, who were working on maybe their first time in rehab, maybe their second, third, or fourth. Yeah. So I, I say that to say that at the period of my life where I had more of a coercive type intervention to engage in recovery, I was highly resistant, you know, mm-hmm. go figure. Uh, all yeah. I wanted to do was figure out a way to keep using and be left alone and at yeah. best get out of trouble. Um, but after relapsing, after spending months uh, uh, going to uh, court for adjournments as my attorney attempted to work my case into drug treatment court. Yeah. Um, I, I was a mess. I, I couldn't stop by the time I was about to be processed and intake, uh, into the treatment court system. I was just as worse off as I was before I went into rehab. And rather than going back there, it made more sense to me to receive this Ibogaine treatment that allowed me to really be more open-minded and accepting of the help that was being offered to me. I still, Mm -hmm. my ideals didn't quite want the 12 step approach. I really didn't want abstinence, but it gave me the humility to recognize that what I want doesn't really fucking matter in this moment (laughs) because I'm a hot mess and I'm I'm a college dropout. I'm unemployable. My Mm -hmm. parents don't want me at home and I don't know what to do with my life. So if it took a powerful African psychedelic to uh, shake me to my core and get me to uh, surrender to a different way of life that I didn't want at the time, ultimately, that's what I think to me proved the most useful. So when you look at kind of the the stages of change model, Mm -hmm. you you have your pre-contemplation all the way up through maintenance and everything in between. I think there are ways to work with psychedelics for each of those stages of change. You know, you're purely in in denial, pre-contemplation person is not necessarily going to have a psychedelic experience completely change their orientation, but it may help nudge them further along down that model towards contemplating things and maybe with continued work, moving them forward. But at every stage, I think there is an application that's useful for psychedelic healing, especially for those that have sought traditional means and had not responded to them. Yeah. So um, your story, uh, you, you know, you, you kind of hit a a bottom on opiates um, and rehab in 12 step wasn't working for you. And then you, you tried the Ibogaine or you, you, and how did, what did that, how did that, um, how did that work for you? Yeah. So, I mean, it did. What did that look like? Yeah. The the Ibogaine treatment itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what's kind of, like how did that, how did that help? Did it stop your opiate use or, or, or is it, are you, a did it lead you to abstinence or to, I mean, are abstinence from opiates or did it lead you to um, harm reduction? 
Oh, no. Th yeah. Thanks for that clarification. I think it's an important one. I mean, because of external factors, what, what people in treatment would call external motivation, um, that was kind of my primary entry point into recovery. So the treatment that was being offered, the recovery paradigm that was being offered was a 12-step informed abstinence-based approach. And I initially right. rejected it several months into a relapse upon experiencing Ibogaine. That was still kind of the only help being offered to me. And it was, it was either, you know, you sort of take this or you continue to struggle and resist. And now that you're in treatment court, you know, you're going to be held accountable for, the th for getting a hot UA for, you know, failing to attend yeah. some kind of recovery meeting and, you know, get your, get your court slip signed and all of that kind of stuff. So Ibogaine's humbling of my resistance allowed me to move to South Florida, go to the polar opposite end of the recovery paradigm from mm -hmm. the wild west of Ibogaine detox to the mainstream <laughs> of South Florida recovery halfway house, you know, Delray Beach 12 step yeah. scene. And um, it helped it, it turned my life around, you know, if it, if it were not for both of those things happening mm -hmm. uh, sequentially, I would not have per, uh, achieved the recovery that I did. Right, right. Um, do you, are there any statistics of success for the message you facilitate and have studied um, that you can share with the listeners? Unlike say AA or a 12 step program, because it's anonymous, there are not, you know, it, true statistics of, of how many people have, how much it works for how many people, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, there's, I think the biggest complicating factor into having really strong, uh, really a real plethora of data about the efficacy of psychedelics has been the fact that many of them continue to remain in the schedule one of the controlled substances act. So they also make it very difficult to receive regulatory approval for research that being said, you know, in the period of the 50s and 60s that we spoke about earlier in this conversation, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, received psychedelic doses of LSD and psilocybin and some others uh, in a variety of contexts. One of the most early ones was for, for alcoholism and um, substance-related disorders. So in the, you shift decades forward, you know, some of the data from those times don't always hold up to the rigorous standards of randomized controlled trials that we have today. So I hesitate to kind of throw percentages around and, and folks can certainly do their own research to get the numbers, mm -hmm. but suffice it to say, they were incredibly promising, especially with a dearth of, of more mainstream traditional or alternative methods to treat these folks. And these were some of your most um, chronic, relapsing, debilitating people. So kind of your worst test cases yeah. receiving um, this, this kind of miraculous treatment at some of their last hopes. So in the more modern era where we do have more rigorous research, the regulatory restrictions have also kind of led there to be um, very small sample sizes for a lot of the studies that have come out. So folks can read about the NYU trial um, on uh, psilocybin-assisted um, motivational enhancement therapy, I believe, is the therapy approach mm -hmm. that they use. But, you know, we're talking about a couple dozen um, uh, folks with alcohol use disorder enrolled in that trial. So, again, I, I hesitate to give numbers per se, but the continued research that exists predominantly around psilocybin and more recently for MDMA for 
Lister is also known as ecstasy yeah. for alcohol use disorder is kind of just getting started. So as we shift into what's called phase three of the FDA uh, development process, that's when there will be larger cohorts of these sample sizes. And we'll really see, you know, it's one thing to say that we saw a 90% success rate. Uh, we all we, we all know in the rehab industry, you know, there's there's a, a truth underneath that number that doesn't that suddenly takes the allure and the appeal of that number as like a marketing ploy, not sound so good. Yeah. So I, I don't want to get too into the weeds on the research limitations, but I will say that there is um, there there is very promising preliminary indication that for things like nicotine use disorder, stimulant use disorder, mm-hmm. opiate use disorder, alcohol use disorder, very, very promising avenues of research. I think in large part due to the fact that these are rapid acting medicines, right? You know that uh, an hour after taking, you know, an equivalent dose of psilocybin as five grams of dried psychedelic mushrooms, you're going to have a pretty powerful experience. And unlike a medicine that you might not notice, right? Like an antabuse or a Vivitrol, um, that unless you take a drug, you're not going to notice that it does anything, mostly because when you take those drugs, it either doesn't do anything or it causes you to get sick. Antidepressants for mental health conditions can take weeks, if not months, to figure out the right dose, right. the right formulation, et cetera. These medicines work rapidly and with the appropriate therapeutic support can lead to long-term outcomes and with short-term interventions. That's great. You know, I mean, personally, my... Um, I'm sober through 12 step program and, and th- through abstinence, but I have a live and let live uh, attitude, which is that whatever, if you need to get sober or free of addiction, um, whatever works for you is the answer, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and so, and I don't get also caught up, like sometimes when they hear in a, in the, in 12 step program, when they hear someone who uses, um, uh, marijuana, you know, as CBD or, or however they use it. I'm like, oh, then they're not really sober. And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's their own personal program. So, you know, it's, it may not be something that I want to do or use, but if it's working for them and they are, uh, not harming themselves or anyone else and leaving a productive and leading a productive life, then, then that's the answer. Um, one last question we ask all of our guests, which is tell us the most difficult struggle you have been through, uh, in sobriety and how did you get through it? Um, grief has been a very challenging one for me and loss and deep, um, painful, uh, mourning. Mm -hmm. Um, a few years ago in, in 2017, uh, I was actually experiencing a relapse. Um, and, and you can imagine, as I've talked about risk of people in recovery, sort of having these outside the box types of approaches to sustaining their recovery. Um, that could be a separate podcast, but <laughs> in addition to being on a slippery slope at the time for a variety yeah. of reasons, I won't get into, um, uh, my father died suddenly from a heart attack while on vacation at age 64. Um, mm. And so I, that was the only excuse that I needed, right. To really kick things into gear. And I know people in recovery can understand that it's his death was not an excuse or a justification, but because I was teetering on the brink already, it it was not a hard place for me to fall, um, to go back to that. Um, I recovered from that several months later, and this was now, um, in April of 2018, I've uh, remained abstinence since then. 
um, in recovery. And in January of this year, um, my son died. Um, I, my oh wife and I experienced the stillbirth. Uh-huh. Um, so our son was at 35 weeks and uh, so due sorry. to be born, uh, in nine days and mm-hmm. he got caught up in the knuckle cord. And so, whereas I was not at a place of being able to grapple with sudden shocking loss, like with my mm-hmm. father, um, a few years later, the, the awful tragic loss of my preborn son, um, really hit me in a very similar place as you can probably imagine. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the temptation was really never there to answer my problems with self-destructive, unhealthy relationships, addictive relationships with drugs. Yeah. I can't say that I handled it with full grace and integrity, mm-hmm. um, but it's the kind of thing that I will be working on really for the rest of my life. And in addition to, being happy about the fact that I've remained on solid ground as a recovering person um, in the in the 10 months since that happened. Um, but I was just at my uh, the 12 week sonogram appointment with my wife um, for uh, our, our next pregnancy that we're obviously really excited about and looking forward to uh, meeting a, a baby boy or girl um, next May. Congratulations. Yeah, thank great. you. And that's a great way to end this um interview and which has been fascinating enlightening and um informative and entertaining so thank you for joining us kevin on the sober podcast today and how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to reach out or um connect with what you're doing sure um i'm on twitter at kevin franciotti uh you can find me on linkedin I have a public Facebook page and I have a, a writing website that uh, showcases some of my published work at kevin.franciati.net. Uh, and my uh, more clinical professional uh, website is kevinfranciatticounseling.com. Fabulous. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a true pleasure having you on as a guest. I am Jamie Brickhouse signing out um, as your sober podcast host. You can find me um, at jamiebrickhouse.com. I'm the author of Dangerous and Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. And I am on uh, TikTok every day where I tell a true story wearing high heels at Jamie underscore Brickhouse. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with another show next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Sober Podcast. We hope that you have found this episode helpful and look forward to you joining us next time. As we continue to grow and implement positive change, we hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. They can find us on all the major podcast directories. If you have an idea for the show, want to leave positive feedback, ideas, or comments, connect with us on thesoberpodcast.com. You can also reach us on our social media platform on The Soberverse. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to all those who make this show happen. Jamie Brickhouse, our host, Carrie, our producer, Carl Fessenden, our voice, and our sponsor, The Sober Network. Sober Network.